This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of Railroad Model Craftsman magazine. Sharpen your modeling skills with in-depth features and how-tos each month with Railroad Model Craftsman from Karsten's Publications. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Welcome to Podcast Light, the little show guaranteed to fill your head with ideas without filling up too much of your time. That's right. No fillers or animal byproducts. Before we greet today's two guests, Jim and I want to remind you to visit the Train Life website where you can find all of our past shows archived. There's no need to go without any you may have missed or are missing. If you didn't download them when they were fresh out of the oven, you can find them in the Train Life fridge. Now to our show. Today's show is brought to you by the letter S. S stands for SIG, and it also stands for, well, it stands for S. As coincidence would have it, both of today's guests have visited with us before. Later on, I'm going to be chatting with Ed Loazzo, a noted S scaler, about the allure of that minority scale. But first, Trevor welcomes back Reverend Doug Harding. As you'll recall, Doug's calling keeps him moving about, and he's designed his layout to move with him. But since he was last here, Doug has been serving as the NMRA's Special Interest Group's coordinator. Here's Trevor. If you've been in the hobby for any length of time and haven't been living under a rock, you've heard of special interest groups, or SIGs. You probably even belong to a few of them. But you probably also have an interest or two that isn't covered by an existing SIG, maybe even several. Well, for most of us, the model railway hobby is driven by our desire to build things, so why not build a SIG? There are probably many other hobbyists who would be interested in the same thing as you and who would benefit from membership. If you decide that creating a SIG is something you want to do, it's good to remember that establishing such an organization has been done successfully many times. So before you go reinventing the flanged wheel, we at the Model Railway Show encourage you to get in touch with my next guest. Doug Harding joined us back on episode 16 to talk about one aspect of his personal journey in this hobby, but he's here today in an official capacity as the National Model Railroad Association's Special Interest Group Coordinator. He's here to tell us about starting a SIG, and what the NMRA can do to help. Welcome back, Doug. Well, thank you, Trevor. It's good to visit with you again. I think the last time you and I got together is when we were working on the article that came out in Railroad Model Craftsman this January. Yes, as a matter of fact, it was. And before we get into our conversation, I do feel like blowing our own horn a little bit on that. You and I had a joint article in the January issue of RMC on grain storage building construction. And I just wanted to say it was a real pleasure working with you on the feature. Well, I I had a lot of fun as well. I always enjoy digging into and doing research. And you had such an excellent modeling article, and I felt some prototype information was needed to um, go along with that. And I know Bill Schomburg appreciated our joint effort there. and He said he had already heard good comments on the article. That's great to know. One of the things that I always like about being part of special interest groups, and of course that's what we're going to discuss today, is the fact that they're great sources for research. So let's just segue into talking about SIGs on that note. Many of us have an idea of what a SIG is, but how does the NMRA define it? I'm not sure the NMRA has a clear definition. Right now they're I think they're struggling with that. When the concept first was developed some 30 years ago, there were a lot of people ahead interests in things like slate operations at a slate mine or heavy industry or marine railroad operations with the ferries. And the NMRA said, maybe there's a way that we can get people who are like-minded together in some fashion. And the concept of the SIGs and the special interest groups was born out of that. They have evolved 
tremendously with some of the SIGs, for example. I think the ones most familiar to people are the um, layout design SIG or the operations SIG and some of the larger railroad historical societies. For you Canadians, the Canadian National Organization, who've got something like 1,600 members, recently became a SIG of the NMRA. That's right, it did. And you mentioned the layout design SIG and the operations SIG. I know that you and I are both members of those, and anyone who isn't familiar with those will have links to both of their sites on our website. They're also quite large, and it's quite sophisticated. There's magazines being put out, there's discussions, there's event organization. It's a lot of work to make a successful SIG, I would imagine. Why would somebody want to start a special interest group? I think primarily to find others who who share that interest and to facilitate means of getting together with them. The beauty of being an NMRA SIG is that then you can participate in any conventions, uh, request space, say at the national convention, where you could have a space for your SIG to meet or gather, even if it's just for maybe one hour on one day, but it's a chance to get together with other people who share the same modeling interests or prototype interests who may be from across the country or around the world. Are there themes that make for a strong special interest group, for example, railroad or topic specific? I think there are. Some of the SIGs in the past, there was a circus train SIG. Unfortunately, it has recently kind of closed its doors. Folded its tent. Yeah, folded its tent because a lot of the circus modelers are no longer with us. But they were a popular SIG. There was a SIG for Heinz pickle cars, and I think that has faded. Other SIGs are newly developed. Then you have things like the heavy industry SIG, or you have the the marine railway SIG. I guess the issue then is what's sort of topics make for a good SIG. It sounds like things like the Heinz Pickle Car SIG might have been too narrowly defined to get the type of membership required for a SIG to be successful. So maybe if people are looking at starting something, they should make sure that they're not too tightly focused, but also not too loosey-goosey. Yes, I think that's true. You know, I've now got the list called up that's on the NMRA's website, and uh, a number of the SIGs are related to either specific scales and or railroad historical societies. I think some of the interest groups looking at a particular type of, for example, I see one here, cane SIG. This is related to sugarcane railways. There's a number of them around the world, not too many of them here in the United States. that may be of, of limited interest for people in North America. But I guess by doing a SIG that is broad and covers all cane railways around the world, there would be enough interest from members around the world to actually keep that sort of a SIG sustainable, whereas if it was the, I don't know, Louisiana cane railroad SIG, it might be too narrowly focused and you'd have have a half dozen members as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, it, it might be like that Slate Quarry SIG group we were discussing earlier. Of, yes. Full of two members who really have a, a vested interest. Uh, of which of which Bill <laughs> Schomburg and I are the two members, yes, because Bill and I have, have wasted a lot of bandwidth over the years talking about the Slate Quarries up in the Monson area in Maine and how the two-foot railroads serve them. Now, before we get into that, that could be a whole other topic for a show. And I got sucked into it so I could talk with you. That's right. <laughs> Well, then we have three members now. We should make it clear that special interest groups are not actually part of the National Model Railroad Association, but many SIGs are recognized by the NMRA. What are the benefits of working with the NMRA to create a SIG as opposed to simply going it alone or starting a news group or a website about your favorite topic? Well, let me clarify something. To be an official SIG, you are affiliated with the NMRA. There is no such thing as a SIG that is not affiliated with the NMRA. And as far as our nomenclature 
on our terminology. So, so you're affiliated, but you're not being run by the NMRA as no, such? No, the NMRA has little or no input. We do not dictate how you run the organization, who should be your officers. We do have some requirements and guidelines. If you want to be a special interest group or a SIG, you need to have someone in your organization who is a member of the NMRA who is willing to be the coordinator for your particular group to be qualified as a SIG. You need to submit an application. There's a $10 fee, a one-time fee. There's no annual pay our dues type of thing outside of the one member who's the coordinator. In the past, it has been a print publication, the implication being a copy of that would be sent to the NMRA library. We are right now starting to discuss how do we handle electronic publications because more and more groups and organizations are switching from a printed publication to a, a electronic publications because of the, the cost savings. And so many folks now have access to email and Internet so that a, an electronic publication is very easy to do and works very well for many groups. So that's some of the requirements for being a SIG affiliated with the NMRA. But what are the benefits for the person who's starting up? the SIG, why would they want to create a special interest group and have it affiliated with the NMRA? Well, one, you have access to all the NMRA members as potential members for your SIG, your group. You can have an official presence at any NMRA event, whether it's a one-day meet for your local division or it's a presence at a national convention, the train show or the convention itself where you provide a slate of clinics to highlight the interests of your SIG. The Layout Design SIG and the Op SIG both are major presences at national conventions where they offer many clinics. They will do special tours of layouts. Those are some of the benefits that I can think of right away. It's a kind of a coming together and sharing similar interests. If someone's interested in starting up a SIG, what can the NMRA do or what sort of advice can the NMRA give them to help ensure that their new idea is a success? The first step is to to go to the NMRA's website and look for the link to SIGs, download the policies and guidelines, and then also click on the application, which is a fill-in-the-blank PDF. Fill that information in, and then you would send that to me, and we would get you registered as an official SIG. It's a fairly simple process. We've had a couple of inquiries where they didn't do a printed publication, and that stopped them at that moment. But as I said, we are exploring the electronic publication to see if we can't make that a acceptable requirement. So those SIG wannabes should get back in touch and keep hammering at that issue with you. Yeah, I, they need to. But mostly, there's really not a lot. And one of the discussions that Bill Kaufman and I have been having, Bill's the vice president of special projects and recruited me to become the SIG coordinator when they were looking for a new one. And we've been talking about what are some things that we can and should be doing as the NMRA to enhance the value of the existing SIGs and to make it desirable for a group to affiliate with the NMRA and becoming a special interest group? As I said, we've been having some conversations. We have not yet put anything into practice. Do you Hopefully. see that happening What the, sometime this year or is that? Um, yes. In fact, Bill was wanting to have some things in place for the upcoming board meeting for the NMRA. With the holidays, I have not gotten back to him yet, but I expect 
hear from him any day now. The board meeting is usually in February, I think. So that will be about the, well, this show will still be on the air when you have that meeting. So we'll have to check back with you and see how that's going. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I know we started off by mentioning some of the SIGs that you and I are a member of. Why do you enjoy belonging to special interest groups? Well, the first one I joined that I was aware of was the OPSIG. And because I, as I my railroad developed and I got into operations, I wanted to learn more and began rubbing elbows with fellow members of the OPSIG. And so I signed up and joined, one, to get their publication, but also to connect with people and learn from those who were already in the operations. That in turn led me to joining the Layout Design SIG when I discovered their publication on um, designing yards. I'd seen both groups at national conventions and just originally thought, boy, they're kind of elitist. They stay off by themselves. But then as I got acquainted with them, found out that there's a great group of people involved with both of those SIGs. In similar vein, I have encountered folks from other SIGs. I belong to several historical societies and have learned that some of them are signed up as NMRA SIGs. Others are not, but that's sometimes a personal choice within that organization as to whether they want to cater to modelers or attract modelers. Some of the railroad historical societies are not really interested in modeling. We have some other significant groups out there we've been having conversations with. NTRAC, for example, is not a SIG of the NMRA. They have been around for 25-plus years, and there have been various conversations about getting them signed up as a SIG, and recently we have begun having that conversation again. But uh, it's surprising, as strong as NTRAC is, that they have never affiliated with the NMRA in any capacity. Hmm, very interesting. How does being a member of SIGs actually affect your enjoyment of the hobby or your ability to build your layout and, and things like that? For me, it has been the connection with other people who have similar interests or who have information and knowledge that I am seeking and I find by belonging to that SIG, I have direct access to that information and knowledge. And it's been, been very helpful. And in turn, as I've become more knowledgeable, I now become one sharing that information instead of seeking that information. So I continue my membership in, say, the Op SIG and the Layout Design SIG. We just talked about our joint article with the Railroad Model Craftsman. I also have just had published a lengthy article in the Layout Design Journal about my own layout. And it was some influence from Layout Design SIG as well as OPSIG. And I know several years ago, I had uh, some lengthy articles in the OPSIG's Dispatcher Office magazine on meatpacking plants, for which I'm known. We don't have a meatpacking SIG, don't need one, but I can share that information through other groups that I belong to, such as the SIGs and the NMRA. Well, that sounds like a great reason right there and a good place to wrap it up. Doug, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show to talk about special interest groups and the role of the NMRA in making them happen and be successful. Happy to do it, Trevor. Good to visit with you. I hope you have a prosperous new year and we will continue to be in touch on things. Thank you and to you. I've been speaking with Doug Harding, the NMRA's coordinator for special interest groups. Thanks, guys. You know, with the increasing numbers of SIG groups out there, Doug is uh, going to be busy in his new post, wouldn't you think? I would certainly think so. You know, if you've never been a member of a SIG, they're really worth checking out. They're kind of like higher education. When we're in high school, everybody in the class has diverse interests and the learning is kind of general. When you get into a SIG, though, it's like going to university. You're in with like-minded people who share interests and ideas at a much higher level. And I think, yeah, there's got to be synergies when you've got a whole bunch of gray matter pulling in the same direction on an issue. And one doesn't have to belong to just one SIG. I mean, there's SIGs for every aspect of layout 
design and operation. Absolutely. And of course, historical societies, uh, uh, do you belong to SIGS, Jim? Yes, I do. I do too. Yes. Very good. And we hope everybody out there does too. So if you're looking for some SIGs, we'll put a link on our show to the uh, the NMRA's uh, website. I'm sure they've got a listing of SIGs there. And while you're on the web, why not come over and find us on Facebook? Good place to keep track of what Jim and I are doing. Don't forget, you can also find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net. You'll never miss an episode. Well, a few episodes back, we discussed the challenges of being in TT scale. This time on the Model Railway Show, we'll swing our gaze over to another minority scale, S, which, if you discount the British double O scale, is the next size up from HO. Jim and I have made no secret that S is our chosen scale, but other than a few references, we haven't been beating our listeners over the head with it. We'll let Ed Loazzo do that. Ed is one of North America's foremost S-scalers, and he's here now with Jim. Last summer, we spoke with Ed Loazzo about the big combined meet of the NMRA and the National Association of S-Gagers in Sacramento, California. As one of the primary organizers on the S-scale side of that meet, Ed made it through tired but unscathed. Ed's always giving back to the scale. He's a past president of the NASG. He's written numerous articles, served on the NMRA's DCC Standards Group, and has co-authored the book Digital Command Control, The Comprehensive Guide to DCC. In the 90s, he was the publisher of 316th Scale Railroading, a short-lived and still greatly missed magazine in the S-scale community. Ed's home layout, the New York Central Valley Division, was featured in the 2005 edition of Great Model Railroads. Ed's layout is a shining example of what is achievable in a scale with so few followers. Ed Loazzo, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Jim. I'm glad to be here. And I made a presumption that you survived Sacramento unscathed, did you? I'm still alive. I ended up in the hospital with a little back surgery, but that had nothing to do with the trains. And uh, other than that, I'm back in the saddle again. Good to hear. The heavy lifting for the show was figurative. What for you, Ed, is the attraction of S-Scale? Well, you know, you're going back a few years to when the decision was made. I made the decision in probably 68 or 69, which is a, a ways back there. And the attraction at that time for me personally was, A, it was bigger than HO, and B, it was smaller than O. It was that simple. It really wasn't terribly complicated. In my little world back then, I was a younger man, and my career was just getting started, so certainly a little bit out of college. O-scale was too expensive. I just couldn't afford it. It took up too much space. I lived in a small house. It was just totally out of the question. On the other side, HO was my scale of choice while I was in high school, and those are back in the days of brass rail, brass wheels, you know, everything oxidized, nothing conducted electricity very well, constant cleaning. It was a real headache, and uh, S-Scale offered me a way to escape that. So at the time, it was the happy in-between optimum alternative for me. That was the main attraction. The size spoke to you. What about the challenge of perhaps having to build things that were, might be readily available in other skills? Was that an attraction at all for you? I wouldn't say it was an attraction, but it was something that I considered quite carefully. And I looked at the available products at the time, and I figured out that there were about eight different engines I could have have. And I cheated. I would get a steam engine like a Rex Diecast 260. And I was figuring, well, I could have one that looks brand new and freshly painted, and I could have one that was kind of weather-beaten and rusty. And and in my mind, I could count that as two engines because they would have distinctive appearances. So I found four engines that I could live with, and one would be new, one would be weathered. That equated to eight engines total. 
And in my mind at that time, there wasn't any reason to ever want more than eight engines. So the cars and structures and all that were not that difficult. There's lots of kits out there. The Kinsman line was going full bore and structures were around and so forth. So it was mainly looking at the engines and making sure there was enough there. Being in the transition era made it easy. There was a few steamers, there was a few early generation diesels, and for me, it, it all came together uh, fairly easily. Well, outside of S-scale, I think there's considerable confusion about what it actually is. Some people think only American Flyer. They don't even realize that there is a fine scale following in 316th scale. Would you say that's correct? I would say that there is certainly an element of, let's call it, lack of knowledge. And this is permeated by a number of places. Magazines sometimes will refer to American Flyer as the primary producer of S-scale equipment. You go into your local hobby store looking for, uh, hey, what what have you got at S-scale? And it's common that the response from the hobby store owner is something like, well, American Flyer stopped production in the 50s and, you know, there's nothing really available anymore. It's easy to get confused because the publications, the local hobby stores, and maybe other people just keep repeating what they've heard. And so people eventually get to this point where they think American Flyer is what it's all about. And in reality, there's two different planets here. There is an American Flyer planet, which is ready to run, toy trains intended and originally designed for children, and then there's scale model railroading, which is not any different than HO or O or N scale. It's on a different planet, a different line of products, different manufacturers, different clubs, different publications. And yes, it's easy for a person to get confused over this because there's two planets and there's not just one planet. Well, it's not only two planets, but you've got a third sector orbiting between those two planets, the high railers that try to combine some of their flyer with scale. Well, that's true. And that does make it confusing. If you were talking about confusing, I would say the high rail area is the most confusing, mainly because there's no standards set for that area. My definition of high rail is a guy who is somewhere between pure American flyer and pure scale. He's in that gray area in between. Well, there's lots of different variations there. There's a thousand shades of gray. You can have different kinds of wheels, different kinds of track, different kinds of couplers. You can have AC. You can have DC. There's a variety of different things. And everybody does it a little bit different. Everybody sort of picks and chooses what they want for themselves, and they proceed down that path. And so you talk about the high rail community. You've got so many variations there that it's very difficult to understand and sort it all out. Okay, this is the last time in this chat I'm going to mention Mr. Gilbert's products, but does the American Flyer presence in the scale adversely affect outsiders' perceptions of S as a scale for serious modelers? I would say it probably doesn't help. I don't see any advantage to having it be there, but it is there in reality, and it deserves to be there. It's just a different hobby. And I would say in the eyes of the people who are unfamiliar with S, I would have to say, yeah, it probably does have an adverse effect because of what they read in the magazines or hear from the local hobby store dealer, that they get the impression that American Flyer is the only thing there, and, you know, that's not what they're looking for. So in that sense, it can be adverse. I have had interesting experiences where people have stated that they've been looking for scale stuff and had never heard of it. And, you know, if they had known about it, they would have done something in this scale. But all they'd ever heard about was American Flyer. So, you know, it can be a turnoff. I would say it's very difficult to mix the gap.
gas and oil. They, <laughs> they don't mix together naturally. Well, take a bow, first of all, for having your layout in the uh, 2005 edition of Great Model Railroads, and I've heard nothing but good from the visitors that were able to drop into your layout last summer. I would say looking at your layout, Ed, it would be easy to think there's also a very large variety of product in S, but really that's not so, is it? It depends on what you compare it to. <laughs> when you say, is there a large variety of product in S, if you compare that to the products available in HO, I would say, yeah, you're right. There's not a large variety compared to HO. If you compared it to maybe O scale, I could say, yeah, there might be a little bit less than O scale, but it's not maybe dramatically different. If you compared it to double O, TT, uh, Z scale, if you compared it to number one scale, there are probably as many products in S scale as in any of those other minority scales. So we are a minority scale. We have fewer products, but in spite of all of that, you can get anything and everything you need to build a complete layout. As long as you are reasonably flexible as to what kind of station or what kind of factory, and you're not looking for an exact and specific prototype. And as long as you're quick off the mark. I'm sure that in the scale there's a lot of limited runs and things that come and go from cottage manufacturers. So I think your mantra is get it when it's there, right? That is true. That's the nature of S-Scale. The nature of S-Scale is I don't know of a single person who entirely makes their livelihood on S-Scale model railroading. There are a lot of people doing a lot of things, but it's a hobby job on the side. It's a retirement job. It's a job that involves S and O and HO all together. There isn't anybody that makes a living on just S-scale model railroading, and that's the nature of the truth here. There's not much we can do to change that, and so with all the... The cottage manufacturers, they come, they go. They get sick, they get divorced, they die, they have all kinds of problems, and then new ones crop up and so forth. And it's just a constantly churning area of newcomers coming in and older folks going away. Okay, with so few hobby shops offering scaleless, how do you come by what you need? Uh, what are the principal non-hobby shop ways of finding well, a scale product? <laughs> Finding where it is and what it is is a challenge for the newcomers. It's really difficult, but for the fellows who have been in the scale for a while, it's very easy. They know where to go. And I think the secret, if you had to do one thing, I would say find a Yahoo group and get into the Yahoo group and then just start asking questions. And you'll say, I want a station. Well, you'll get 20 replies from 20 different people telling you where to go find a station. Oh, I want an 060. Well, there'll be a bunch of people that, well, you could do this, this, or that, and get an 060. And so mingling with other people electronically is probably the best thing to do. (laughs) eBay listings, lots of us go stuff on eBay. Listings. You have to sort through things. There's a lot of stuff there like diecast vehicles and American Flyer and, and things that maybe you don't care about. But the S scale is there. You just have to kind of sort it out on eBay. And lastly, I would say are train conventions and train shows that are S-oriented. NASG has an annual convention. There's S-Fest. There's S-West. There's a number of different activities going on, and you just have to go to these shows, and you'll see boxes and boxes of S-Scale on the tables are ready to be sold. None of it's advertised in the magazines. It's a word-of-mouth environment, and it's really difficult at first. But once you get used to it, it's, it's really not that bad. It's part of the fun, isn't it? Part of, the, yeah. part of the fun is discovering something yeah. that you never knew existed, but it fits right into your theme of your layout perfectly. Well, <laughs> and uh, you go home with a smile on your yeah. face. 
Well, the Internet has really enabled us scalers. I think another big enabler is uh, some of the new tools that are coming available. Laser cutters have made it easy for kit manufacturers just to produce an S-scale kit, for example. How are other emerging technologies such as 3D printing going to help us, do you think? S-scale, as we know, is a minority scale. There are fewer people modeling in S-scale than almost any other scale. And any technique that allows you to produce a small volume of product, let's say 50 pieces, 100 pieces, uh, maybe 200 pieces of something that allows you to do that somewhat economically, all of a sudden that becomes a product that is very suitable to the S-scale market. You can sell 50 or 100 of just about anything. The problem is, is how do I make 100 of something economically? Well, that's where the laser machines and anything relating to the computers comes in. Uh, you can't sit there with an X-Acto knife and a saw and cut this stuff up and use your labor to do that. Use the modern technologies for short-run manufacturing. So if you can become proficient using any short-run technology you have a market waiting for you in the S-scale area because you can sell it. It's a scale that's starved for new products. It's a scale that has very enthusiastic following, and there's just a way, it has to be a way to get the volume down to where we are. You know, mass-producing 5,000 or something is great for the HO market. Injection molding is great, but it just isn't going to work too well for the average S-scale layout. Is S-scale in a dip right now? There seem to be fewer brass locomotive imports available. Some of the scale's larger manufacturers are struggling because of difficulties in China. Could you outline for us what's happening with that situation, Ed? I'm not sure if I would call it a dip as far as the brass market is concerned. Certain things have happened, and I think they have happened over the years. They started several years ago. Basically, the labor costs in Korea, where the brass models are made, have steadily increased uh, dramatically, and it has gotten to the point where uh, brass freight cars and brass passenger cars have gotten very expensive that uh, Nobody really uh, can afford them or wants to afford them. And other models have come in from China that are uh, injection-molded plastic, mass-produced. They're very nice. They're highly detailed, and they're very authentic and beautiful paint schemes, and they're much more economical to buy. And so I think what has happened is the Chinese production technology has made the price so low that the other folks have just kind of gone by the wayside. So in terms of freight cars and passenger cars, I think you're right. They have kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. Brass locomotives, on the other hand, are doing quite well. We have one S-scale company that really imports brass locomotives right now. The other two companies that used to do that, the owners got older and have retired and so forth. The one that's left is River Raisin Models, and they do about one S-scale project every 18 months or so on a fairly steady basis with a wide variety of different locomotives. One project, though, may have 10 variations, and so you could do a project of Southern Pacific steam locomotives and have eight or 10 different locomotives to choose from, different paint schemes, different detailing, different tenders. And so it's, it's really a lot more than what it sounds like when you say one project every 18 months. With regard to the Chinese connection, the problem there is that uh, one company, Sandakan, was sort of the world's largest maker of toys and model railroad equipment. And they did all kinds of things for all kinds of people all over the world. They had many, many customers in Europe, uh, as well as throughout Asia and Australia and, and 
America as well. They were purchased, and the new owner made a fundamental business decision that said, let us not do business with anything except our largest customers. And all the little guys, uh, we really don't really want to do business with them because there's not enough volume there to make it worth our while. So about 60 different companies were told that they could no longer place orders, that their existing contracts would be filled, but after that they would not accept any new orders. So of those 60 companies, three of them happened to be in S-scale, and so these three companies all ended up in a similar situation in that they couldn't place new orders with their factory and they had to find a new factory. So they are currently in the process of transferring tooling and design work and so forth from one company to another company. There are other companies in China that can handle the, the workload. They're happy to do business with smaller companies. It's just that the giant of the group wants to do business with other giants, and they don't want to do business with us minority folks. And the transfer is underway. Now, is this a dip or is it a transfer? Well, it's a terminology question, I guess. I think a year from now or 18 months from now, the transfer will be completed and new products will be emerging and things will return to normal. That, of course, is looking into the future, but that's what my prediction is anyway, based on what's happening. Do you still actively encourage people into S? Well, I certainly encourage them to investigate S. I, I think S is a phenomenally new and wonderful experience for most people. So I would encourage them to investigate S thoroughly before making a decision, and I would encourage them not to listen to people who don't know very much about S to start with, and to go directly to either organizations, clubs, or publications, or Yahoo groups, or SIGs, or anything else that is S-oriented, and ask lots and lots of questions, and explore what's available, the advantages, the disadvantages, and so forth. Now, S may not be for everybody. Uh, certainly, there are advantages and disadvantages to every scale. The larger scales, the emphasis tends to be on the specific models, a particular model of a locomotive or a boxcar or whatever. The smaller scales, the emphasis seems to be on the overall panoramic scene where you have the mountains, the rivers, the towns, and the train is snaking through it, and it's not so much looking at a particular caboose or a particular locomotive. In the range, the total range of things, that scale is in the middle. It's big enough that you can savor the flavor of an individual model, and it's small enough that you can create some very nice scenes in, in a reasonable space. So, you know, one or two car garage, maybe a large bedroom, uh, can give you a very nice, uh, satisfying layout in S scale. So it's, it's sort of an optimum size. It's in the middle, and and uh, I think it's worth looking at very seriously. Ed Loazzo, thanks for being with us today. And we'd like to encourage our listeners to check out the links uh, on this show's episode guide to find your way into more information about the fine-scale modeling potential of S. So long, Ed. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. Well, thank you, Ed, and thank you, Jim, for that. You know, I wonder if you can actually talk someone into modeling in a specific scale or if a scale simply calls out to you. I think at the end of the day, Trevor, logic is no good. A scale has to speak to you. You have to see a need for it yourself. I think you're probably right on that. How did you get involved in S? First of all, I had a Marx train set as a kid. It was 027, which means that all the superstructures were S scale. I just took a liking to that size in my hand. In the mid-80s, when I was modeling in HO, I went and bought a S scale boxcar kit that was new to the market, put it on a shelf above the workbench, and every once in a while, I'd sit the HO scale boxcar on the roof, and that was the beginning of the end. I never did any more work on the HO layout. Just like that? Just like that. Good for you. And of course, we've 
heard about Ed's story. One of the things I found interesting in his interview was uh, he talks about doing your research before you switch and talks about various ways you can do that. I know when I got involved with S, that's what I did. I had some trepidation because I had heard the stories about how S stands for sorry. Sorry, you can't get that anymore. Sorry, that's not made. And so I looked around and I basically drew up a list and said, this is what I would need to build the railroad that I'm interested in. And then guess what? You found it. I went shopping and didn't go shopping physically. I did some virtual shopping Mm -hmm. and asked friends about what was available. And I found everything I needed. It's really worked out. One of the other things that Ed didn't mention, he he, he said, there's anything you need to build a layout in S out there. But he didn't mention scratch building. And I think it's really important to remember that S is an architect scale. You can just grab your... Uh, standard uh, inch ruler with the 64th measurements on it. You bet. And off you go. Yeah. One 64th of an inch is one inch in S scale. And you're right about the building part. That, for me, is still the attraction. I kind of look forward from time to time to not being able to find something, so it will force me to the workbench. Absolutely. So we hope that this has forced you to the workbench, but on your way, why not stop by the modelrailwayshow.com for interesting links related to all of the interviews that you've, that you've just heard. And visit our Flickr gallery and go shopping for some swag, why don't you? Yes, we've got mugs, T-shirts, you name it. You just did. I just did, yes, absolutely. On the next edition of the Model Railway Show, we hit a ride on the TARDIS, and I'm sure some of our listeners will have to Google that one. Jim heads back to the past with Keith Wills, who writes the Collector's Consist column for Railroad Model Craftsman magazine. And I, I head back to the future with my guest, Christopher Howard, from Railflyer Prototype Models, a company rethinking how to model the diesel locomotive. Thanks to Otto Vondrak for our great-looking website, Dave Woodhead for the catchy music, and Chris Abbott for technical support. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. You have been listening to The Model Railway Show. <laughs> I mean, my big mouth. <laughs>